0: time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Associate Professor Ilan Nimrod from the School of Psychology at University of Sydney. Ilan's main line of research examines the effects of perceived genetic etiology for various phenomena. Integrating research from diverse disciplines such as psychology, communication, sociology, history, political science and law, Ilan examines how communication of theories that emphasize genetic explanations can affect a wide variety of psychological outcomes, ranging from test performance to moral evaluations. He asks interesting questions such as, what happens if you have the obesity gene? And what happens if you think you do? He explores how genetic essentialism shapes perception and how this shows up in human life. Ilan is incredibly well-spoken, articulate, knowledgeable, and so easy to talk to. It was such a pleasure to interview Ilan and hope you enjoy learning from him as much as I did during this conversation. Enjoy. Ilan, thank you so much for coming onto the program today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Nash. Thank you for inviting
0: me. I'm really looking forward to looking at the space of combining or, or, or uh, molding psychology together with genetics and, and exploring how we make sense of the world uh, and, and and getting appreciation of, you know, the language that we use and how we've understood it. And obviously there's plenty of myths in, in, in this space, many that I probably use myself that I'm actually not aware of what the research actually says. Um, so it'd be fantastic to uh, hear from you today
1: it's one of my favorite topics naturally so as long as you'll have me i will be very happy to discuss those things
0: lovely lovely how did, how did you get into this space why, why why combining these two i know that you've got other interests as well uh, but what 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 brought you towards you know the, 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 these two um places what, what brought those two worlds together for you
1: I really need to consider a better origin story than the one I have because I really don't have a very exciting one. Um, I started uh, my grad school at the University of British Columbia in Canada, and I am an intellectual omnivore. I find interest in pretty much almost everything, and I lose interest in a lot of things once it's going too deep uh, just because of the new shiny. And I have started my grad school looking at culture. Um, So psychology and culture, I then shifted to look at individual differences in something that is uh, uh, really understudied. Uh, Basically the kind of idea of what coolness is Um, I've touched on uh, death in a theory called term management. I went on to do research on maximization tendencies, et cetera, et cetera. So I really find a lot of interest in pretty much any new information that, that comes along my way where I can find new ideas to try and extend existing research. Uh, It was the same for me with genetics and our understanding and categorization. Uh, I think the main difference is I just got hooked more on that than on most other things. So it's a staying power rather than a specific, you know, touchy history of you know, a uh, uh, member of a family that had a genetic disease that led me to look at how we understand genetics.
0: Look, to, to me, I can certainly say I am I am attracted to the genetic side as well, ju- ju- uh, just because it, it has qu- quite significant implications in, in both sides of where there is a very strong genetic link, and we can hopefully appreciate that, understand it, do things about it and also about when there might not be or, or there's loose links and um conversations about how genetics play out that they may or may not but once that's internalized for a human being it, it can have all sorts of um uh, interesting ways in which people can can integrate that into their lives and make decisions about that as well um so yeah uh might be useful to to to, to start with, with uh trying to understand how do genes play uh have a play in, in psychology other than obviously the the variation i mean we know that you know from an evolutionary perspective there's a very good reason to have plenty of variation between offspring uh, um, uh, but uh, in terms of you know the psychology world um you know we, we see lots of personality differences that We could say that a, a portion of those are very much genetic in nature how about these these bigger categories like you know uh tendencies toward mental health um difficulties whether we're talking about depression or anxiety i mean some of these things i think you could make these easy calls or links, you know, from a conversational style, but I'm, I'm interested to see what, what do the, what do the academics, what do you say? Um, you know, what what's actually out there um, and, and, and proven.
1: Um, so first of all, genetics and its relationship to our um, soft phenotypes, personality characteristics, etc., rather than, structure of the body or elements such as that. Our understanding of inheritance is um, fascinating from the history of science perspective, how we understood um, or at least how we lived our life even before we understood the methodology of how we inherit traits from previous generations. Um, whereas this is a really important and very interesting uh, conversation to have. Um, as a psychologist, this is probably not where I'm going to be very comfortable having uh, uh, sharing expertise. I can tell you that, for example, our best understanding of um, genetics involvement in um phenotypes, especially kind of those type of soft phenotypes like personality uh, uh, disorders or personality characteristics, etc., are uh, ones that are quite unexciting. And by unexciting, I mean that um, similar to diseases, for example, uh, genes are involved in most uh, health-related elements and they determine very, very few. So yes, there are elements that are gonna be completely, um, you know, if there's nothing uh, that that actually shortens one's life trajectory uh, so a disease doesn't manifest itself, then the genes will make sure it does. So Huntington disease, for example, we are uh, born, we may carry a gene that would uh, uh, lead us to develop Huntington disease if we reach a specific age. And it's not that the gene is only kind of yes, no uh, trigger. It actually can also indicate quite precisely when symptoms will be introduced by just how many repetitions of specific nucleotide will appear on those uh, relevant genes. So yes, there are obviously um, diseases, disorders that are that connected to genetics, but most are not. And what a lot of the field of genetics, behavioral genetics, et cetera, has been attempting to do for many decades is try to quantify how much is something genetic? How much is it environmental? Um, And they have quite sophisticated and quite also simple tools to evaluate it. Um, Personally, I find that those tools are wanting. I think they produce values that look very accurate. You can have like decimal points suggesting that you can uh, really kind of parcel the responsibility to genes versus environment to that degree of accuracy. But most of it, as far as I'm concerned, is smoke and mirrors. The problem is that um, genes and environment are so interconnected that trying to parcel one from the other is put out to some degree, but also harmful as we're probably gonna talk later on. Mm. Uh, And that's probably where my expertise is lying. How is it harmful? How
0: is it potentially beneficial? It's so beautiful to hear you speak in that way and and, and be so methodical and and considered about your words in in this space. And, and and that's what I hope we would always see from academia. You know, where understanding you know, genes are involved in, in 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 many diseases and 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 the like, and we know that you know through methylation of particular genes, things can can show up or not, but but they determine. You know very few that that that, that we don't have uh, uh strong scientific evidence that that specifically says yes you know you know with 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 the um uh, uh significant na- significance nature that we need to be able to report on having said that the media on the other hand doesn't act accordingly and so we hear things like you know the depression gene or the obesity gene and all sorts of stuff, which... which... Well, the
1: divorce genes or the success gene or very interesting kind of suggestive that use the same tools that we use to look at, for example, uh, disease or characteristics phenotypes. Uh, and we can find that there is a gene for success in the same way that there is a gene for obesity, in the same way that there is a gene for divorce, in the same way that there is a gene for um, cancer. Um, all of them using those tools would manifest itself, but I think that while while people find a disease gene or a cancer gene, something a bit... Uh, uh, that is not really conflicting with their understanding of the world, they would find it harder to see a gene for success. Um, And again, all that is revolving around what we understand genes to do, what we understand gene to represent, rather than what genes exactly do, which is code for production of proteins.
0: Mm. Mm. And what are some of the pitfalls that you see that, that come from exploring this, this 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 world? I mean, I always have a concern that uh, yeah, the written word or yeah, the word on a podcast or the word on television, this stuff just so often for so many just gets absorbed without any thought whatsoever. You know, it's, it's like yeah, people read a headline, they don't read the article. They don't actually read beyond the article. They don't even complete the article, and they actually don't even critique the article. Uh, they just read that first line, which says something like a divorce gene or obesity gene or success gene or depression gene, and they formulate a, an opinion on that. Uh, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts, um, and, and obviously you know, incorporating uh, your other uh, uh, passions of you know existential psychology how we make decisions and 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 and, and the impact of that because to me it's one of the big concerns that i have in psychology is is human beings particularly hearing things around genes and 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 then removing their own responsibility because you know it's outside of their you know power because that's what that's what genes sound like to the layperson
1: Indeed, um, if you'll allow me, I think that a lot of the time um, just telling a story that completely conveys the problem in something that's very relatable can be helpful. So when I started uh, presenting my research about uh, genetic essentialism, which is a term that is going to be probably... Uh, featured quite a lot later in our conversation, Uh, I was trying to give something accessible to the audience, something that moves it away from um, scary terminology and very kind of removed understanding or uh, perception of understanding of a a deeply developed science. So uh, let me introduce you to a friend of mine. My friend' name is Joe. He's been working uh, for Immigration Canada. I was living in Canada for a few years, and he's been working there for over 15 years. And um, Joe is uh, quite of a heavyset person. And uh, he's not very happy about it. He's been trying out many different diets throughout his life. He also makes himself go out to the gym kind of twice or three times a week, really trying to control his expanding waistline. Um, One day he calls me and he says, oh, you can't believe what I've just read. Uh, I opened the New York Times I don't know even why I never do it before. Um, and I came across this article saying that uh, um, scientists discover the fat gene or what we other people call the obesity gene. And I was actually feeling quite relieved to see that. Uh, so why are you feeling relieved? He said, well, at least now I understand that it's not what I do. It's not because of me. It's because I was born this way. And therefore, all my negative self-talk, all the diets that I've tried, they didn't work out. Now I understand why. I can also now stop going to this darn gym because I really am not enjoying it. And I feel much better about my ability to say, you know, here's your membership. I do not want to see you again. so here's, that's that's Joe. That's Joe reading the exact headlines that you were talking about before. Uh, and that Joe relates those headlines to decades of experiences that they've had throughout their life and see it not only as some kind of a, very cold understanding of science, but instead of something very personal to them, something that has meaning in how they're going to live their life now. Um, So Joe, let me basically bring him out of the closet. Joe is a virtual person. Joe doesn't really exist. Um, But what I found through my own research is that there's a little Joe in most of us. So I'll give you an example of how I took Joe and made an experiment out of him. I brought individuals to basically a lab, and just like you've mentioned, um, people read, consume media, and much of the scientific media that is made accessible to the lay intelligent person is about genes. We see it's it's ubiquitous. Uh, If you ever follow science sections of uh, main media outlets, uh, invariably you're gonna see something about genetics at least once a week, most likely a few times a week. So the consumer of such media will have kind of substantial exposure to arguments about genes. Um, Now, I would love to vilify media, who doesn't? But I don't think that the media is, you know, particularly more vilifiable here, uh, because I think the media is actually basically channeling the same biases that we have as individuals. And it just reflects it back to us. Journalists are human beings, surprisingly enough. And as such, they're susceptible to many of the cognitive biases that human beings are susceptible. One of them is exactly what I'm talking about, which is genetic essentialism. And a bit later, maybe we're going to break it down to what are specific cognitive biases that emerge from that phenomenon. So I invited people and I have... Um, basically provide them with uh, I something I termed um, a measure of verbal intelligence. And because people are familiar with those kind of measures, there was a, also a, a, an article in it uh, followed by multiple choice questions where it's supposed to be reading comprehension. And my manipulation was basically disguised as those articles. So in one condition, participants read about um, scientists discover an obesity gene kind of headline. Again, mm. very common in the literature. And in another, we provided them with very similar account of obesity that revolves instead on social network. Again, another thing that actually has scientific uh, support is a kind of etiological element in obesity. So when the people around us are gaining weight, we are more likely to gain weight. When people around us are losing weight, we are more likely to lose weight. Um, and in a third condition, we just talk about food production to kind of, you know, stay within food but unrelated to etiological explanation for obesity. And After participants completed a few tasks, one of them being that reading comprehension, we thanked them and we told them, hey, the experiment is over, you can leave now. However, as you can see, we are uh, a lab that does a lot of research about psychology of food, and we are trying to find a very good um, baked good to use in future research that will be revolving around actual consumption of food. Would you be uh, willing to help us with giving us your opinion about how good is the actual baked good? And all of them invariably, students at the university were happy to get some cookies, said yes. So we took them to a different room on a different floor where we actually baked cookies and it was, smelling heavenly, Uh, I think for for months at a time, I had all the people around the offices come to me and say, do you have any more cookies to give us? And it was very, uh, uh, um, it was a very, very good time to be a researcher back then. And uh, (laughs) i certainly got a lot of points among my colleagues for that. Um, But what we wanted to do is basically see if following that, reading comprehension, that exposure to explanation for obesity or a control condition, we will see a difference in how much would the participants consume when they are basically um, given a bowl of broken cookies and they are allowed to have as many as they want by themselves in a room. And what we found was actually, I think even the, the the effect was expected, the magnitude of the effect surprised me personally. So we found that participants who read about that obesity gene consumed 50% more in weight of those cookies than participants in the control condition.
0: That's significant.
1: Uh, it was significant, but it was also substantial. Um so yes it was something that i think really for me drove home that you know fictional joe that i was mentioning and that's why i really identified joe in you know probably every one of us uh, i think we read or we hear about a gene that is associated or potentially determine usually scientifically inaccurately, but how, that's how we often hear it, uh, a phenotype, and then we just throw our hands in the air and say, well, no point in fighting it.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that's the point, I think, uh, uh, not not using the word significant from a uh, scientific perspective as in a significant uh, result but, but a substantial result as in 50% quantity-based you know measure measured by weight uh, is is a lot it's that's you know kind of like saying you know I had a you know glass of water or I had a glass and a half of water you know that it's a big big difference and and obviously it it it, it potentially uh, alludes to the removal of self-efficacy of saying why what is the point of you know uh, behavior change restriction um, you know acting in accordance with the knowledge base that I have uh, of limiting uh, my consumption if it doesn't matter because the obesity gene is set and planted and you know uh, I I don't have, much to to contribute in in this space.
1: Indeed, and, and while I think this example is something that many people may actually relate to personally, it's hardly the only area in in our lives where we can see the same um, biases basically working out and affecting our in this case, behavior, sometimes it's attitude, sometimes it it would be emotional responses. It can be a variety of actual outcomes that can come from our exposure to some sort of genetic etiological claims out there, especially when they come with some sort of a scientific uh, respectable umbrella as the source. Um, And again, it combines our tendency to have some sort of a respect to science as um, a conveyor of explanation, which is something that I'm very happy as a scientist that we have, but it also brings about our uh, limited understanding of what it is. And Let's say if we talk about string theory, Um, string theory is a fascinating theory. Not many of us are using claims from string theory in our daily lives. We don't use a lot of metaphors from string theory in our daily life. We're not guiding our behavior or the way that we are navigating the world in light of our understanding of string theory. Arguably, most of us are not much more familiar with what genes really do than we are with what string theory really tells us. Nevertheless, we are using it in a metaphorical way constantly. Kobe Bryant, great basketball player, maybe one of the best ever to walk this earth, hardly a genetic scientist, I think, used to use that, you know, the DNA of the Lakers team, the team he used to play for in the NBA. A team doesn't have a DNA. He didn't mean it in a geneticist kind of way of meaning it. What Kobe Bryant was talking about is the essence of that Lakers team. That in its core, the essence of, of that team is such. And instead of saying that, he just used something that everyone understands, which is the DNA of the Lakers team. No one raised an eyebrow. What does it mean? The Lakers team doesn't even have a body. How does it have a gene? No one was asking that. It's clear to everyone. And it's clear to everyone because we borrowed a very, very, Complex scientific entity, and we're using it in a way that makes sense to everyone around us, around us, but not necessarily in a way that science would suggest it's appropriate to use it.
0: It's uh, it's interesting. While you're talking about that, the first person that popped up in my mind was Deepak Chopra, who has used quite significantly the word quantum, um, and and he's very articulate and clearly he is very intelligent. Uh, but he within that he's also been able to use words like quantum, you know, healing, quantum, syn- synchronicity, quantum, quantum, and and uh, and because he can speak at length and and quite compellingly on these um topics it 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 comes across with with great confidence and it's quite easy to then digest and say wow it comes from a uh, from a credible source um and and you know we put the word quantum which means oh well quantum equals science we know things uh, at that level and so you know now if i think in a particular way that can coexist somewhere else and therefore i can attract x and y and and my goodness, um, uh, uh, at least some concerning decisions can be made for uh, people who might not be so critical of that work or, or have that literacy. If if, if, uh, if we talk about if we talk about that, was there? Uh, sorry to jump back a little bit, uh, Ilan. Uh, was there any moderating factor around someone's? Uh, capacity to uh, lit- uh, I'm not sure what the language is but um, uh, their capacity to critique you know li- literacy um, the-, the criticism of I'm sure there's a term here but but how to have a critical mind um, when reading these things and how that potentially moderates, the quantity of, of cookies that someone might eat. And it might not be that particular research that that you would have looked at, but in the literature, does that moderate
1: things? I'm sure there are uh, quite a few moderates because there is enough variability in the responses of people to suggest that we are not uniformly reacting to those kind of, uh, in my case, manipulation Uh, when it appears in, I don't know, the L.A. time, uh, more of a natural field study. But uh, we do have research to suggest that uh, there is um, certain uh, elements that can moderate specific manifestation of genetic essentialism, but... uh, it, we haven't really seen something that seems to consistently moderate um, across different domains. Yeah. Um, our best uh, indication for something that would be closely resembling a moderate across different domains would be education. So mm. just general level of education can moderate or reduce, in this case, Uh, that essentialist responses, that throwing our arms in the air and saying we can't do anything about it because it's in our genes. Um, And surprisingly enough, I would have expected that specifically biological education, genetic education, would be even better predicted than education in general. Um, So far, we don't have a clear indication that that's the case. In my own research, when I looked at different manifestations, I found that I cannot uh, identify biological education and genetic education as more potent than general education in uh, producing some kind of inoculation, although very limited in its uh, efficacy.
0: It's so interesting. Uh, after about five seconds of you talking with your response, I thought to myself, that's a dumb question. Um, of course, uh, there's going to be that variability, but it just shows even your own bias of of, of how we talk as though, as, a, as though inoculation is a thing that can be provided versus, of course, there's this variation. Evolution says there has to be, you know, the, the, the answer will always be yes, but, you know, the devils in the detail so it's 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 funny to just observe myself in in that as
1: well <laughs> and look I have to admit that funnily enough uh, so I've been studying genetic essentialism for the better part of over two decades now uh I've been working with um collaborated uh, pretty much all this time uh on various projects with, my uh, mentor from my uh, PhD training uh, Professor Stephen Heine from um, University of British Columbia, who actually wrote also a, a great book about it, uh, not directed to the scientific community, but uh, what we call trade book, uh, something to the uh, uh, general public. Um, and Steve, sent his own um, saliva sample to one of those uh, direct-to-consumer testing company. And you get a full report back about various genetic uh, uh, elements with not only uh, kind of physiological elements, but also... Uh, things like, and in his case, it was something that really shook him up um, intelligence, uh, for example. So, the, the specific allele that is probably um, the one that has the most association that we have currently uh, with uh, just intelligence test scores. Uh, and he found he doesn't have that allele. So, he, person who's been doing research on genetic essentialism as long as I have been doing research on genetic essentialism, who is intimately familiar with all the biases of our understanding of what genes are, says: I was staring at that report, and I felt, oh, that's a shame. I could have been more intelligent. I'm like, oh, I felt I, I I'm just not as intelligent as I thought I was before I saw that report. And beyond the actual um, association, which is tiny, because probably most of our genes are intelligence genes, uh, there is no single gene that makes us intelligent or not. Uh, and even polygenetic scores can predict only that much of our the variability in intelligence. But Um, Nevertheless, even a person who is so intimately familiar with our biased perspective on genes can be susceptible to use exactly that essentialistic approach uh, that we are consistently warning people of. So I think point being is that even knowing of that tendency, that essentialistic tendency, and perhaps in a minute I should try to explain why we call it essentialistic tendency and what it all means. Uh, But even a person who is so intimately familiar with it can be susceptible from an emotive, at least, perspective, from how does that person feel once he learns about something genetics about themselves Um, is, is, showing how it's hard to shed, just because we know something, it's hard to shed our understanding uh, that might be um, pre-existing and much less uh, nuanced um, as we would expect.
0: It's it's so fascinating how drawn humans are to have a narrative, to, to give a reason, to explain and you know that's where these biases come from they're confirming biases that that, that says if, if I have a body of knowledge you know I tend to attract more of the same I I, I can easily um, cut away anything that is different to or, or goes against uh, and continue to to just reinforce and my reinforce my framework and and but you know language is these powerful statements are powerful. We've all felt them, and, and I think what something that you said earlier about you know the the explanation of Joe. There's a bit of Joe in all of us. You know, it's a, it's such an elegant way to 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 talk about this.
1: I don't. I unfortunately, I don't think I shed my own inner Joe again after 20 years of intimately researching and understanding the phenomenon. Um, that basically, you know, created that small little joe inside us all. But if I can, again, go back to the uh,
0: essentialistic tendencies you were were wanting to to elaborate on. And
1: and that's exactly what I'm trying to zoom up a bit, because uh, we are considering genes and genetics as a science, Uh, It's been barely over a century since we truly understood the level of, or the actual uh, element that is responsible for our inheritance. So when Darwin wrote uh, about the evolutionary theory, he wrote at a time when they did not know what is in our body responsible for Transmitting that inheritance of traits of diseases, etc. Uh, so genes have been discovered in the 20th century, 50, 60 years after uh, Darwin has started uh, um, his own claims about how evolution works. So we didn't need to know what the actual vehicle for the inheritance from one generation to another to already provide a quite nuanced understanding of how that, uh, uh, of the outcome of that vehicle. Um, but because genes as a concept are barely over hundred years old, it doesn't mean that genes as a metaphor were not there long before. So the idea of genetic essentialism may be limited to the time that we understood what genes are, but the concept of essentialism or in its more general form, what's called psychological essentialism is uh, probably been with us as a species ever since we had enough intelligence to look at the world around us and try to make sense out of it. So psychological essentialism is basically the tendency uh, to try to create categories, to be able to navigate a world of so many instances and individuals, uh, even with the sheer computing powers that we have between our years, we would just find it intractable. If we cannot simplify the world around us to specific rules and category-based rules, we would not be able to actually uh, uh, wrap our heads and navigate that environment. So we need simplifications. So categories are vital to our ability to navigate the world successful. And to create categories, we need tools. We need some kind of cognitive enabling elements that would allow us to create categories in a way that is both um, efficient and um, inferential. Allows us to make good inferences about the world, so we don't end up putting our head under the sword because it makes sense to do that because swords is one of the things that we also use metal for just like beds and we put our heads on a bed. Um, So if we are failing in creating useful categories, then we are very likely uh, going to have a hard time surviving to an age of reproduction, which suggests that those individuals are no longer with us. Psychological essentialism is one of the most powerful ways to make sense and to make categories because it assumes that natural entities, uh, things like organisms, things like minerals, have an underlying uh, nature or essence that makes them what they are. So a lion is a member of that family of lions, and by being a member of that category, it shares an, an essence a nature with all other lions. And that nature give rise to the character, characteristics we see. So it kind of flip; it reverses the logic. Instead of th- saying, if you have characteristic A, B, and C and D, then you are a lion, it flips it. It says, if you are a lion, you will have the characteristics A, B, and C. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because it flips the causal element to something that metaphysically has been shown not to be there. So if you think about what's the essence of a human being, if there is an essence, then Let's say you are a person who is materialistic, like many scientists are. It needs to be a material. It needs to be something. Where is that essence? Where does it sit? Which body organ you have that is the essence? So metaphysically, again, that essence doesn't exist. There's a great, you know, a... Uh, uh, um, philosophical, and also psychological accounts that do a great job uh, dismissing it as a metaphysical phenomenon. But I think that um, most of your listeners can probably you know, reach that conclusion themselves by just kind of reflecting on it. That essence that doesn't exist is still something that we hold very strongly to. So if we take adults and even children they show that tendency to see that underlying essence in natural categories. Um, So if you take, and that experiments have been done with children, has been done with adults. If you take an animal, let's say um, an animal like a sheep, and you are changing a lot of that sheep. So you surgically make it look like a goat and you change the vocal cord so it would make noises like a goat. And you change any physical feature that makes it look like a sheep to make it look like a goat. Do you have a goat or do you have a sheep? Ask children and almost invariably, they all gonna say, no, it's still a sheep. Doesn't matter that you did all that, you didn't change the essence of that animal. And even if you add psychological treatment that makes it think like a goat, it doesn't really matter. There's nothing you can do to a sheep to make it a goat. Why is that? If the features are what determines the category, then at one point you would have a goat. But because there is an essence or perceived essence, then there is nothing that you can actually do to get rid of that essence. And that's led a lot of individuals when they're talking about psychological essentialism to indicate that that essence is non-materialistic almost by definition. So that essence, the characteristic of that essence is, it is unseen, it's um, um, deterministic, it's causal, Uh, It's inherited, uh, and it is basically the thing that is causing all the phenotypes, all the actual characteristics that we can see. Um, And that's great. But if you look at all those elements that we are using to define an essence, they are one-to-one the way that we are seeing what genes are. Genes are unseen. They are perceived as cause of phenotype. Uh, They are inherited. Uh, uh, They are stable throughout life, just like the essence. Um, So all those defining elements of our metaphysical misunderstanding of essence are shared with our misunderstanding of genes leading us to kind of use genes just like Kobe Bryant did to prescribe what otherwise would be just called essence. Um, And and the fact that that psychological essentialism has been around and can be seen in writings that are three, 4,000 years old and can be seen in children that were born Um, in Norway or in the Kalahari, um, suggests that we can have something that is very human in nature. And the fact that Steve Heine, with all his understanding of genetic essentialism, is still susceptible, just shows how deep that that metaphysical misunderstanding is within us.
0: And maybe... I mean, first of all, what you've said there is 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 absolutely mind-boggling to see how we can so easily flip the equation, uh, and and then completely misunderstand. I'm going to use a big word here, but it feels like misunderstand everything that 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 we we uh, can be so misguided. Um, Uh, just by not pausing because of the nature of needing to communicate rapidly and quickly and just live a, live a regular life. We don't pause to try and understand how these uh, relate to one another. And and we so easily do, you know, the, the causal relationship. Um, But we end up doing it in both ways and then, we tend to just lean into the one that's easier um uh, almost it almost starts a conversation around potentially w- why we might be observing a category categories being pulled into almost tribalistic ways when we talk about you know an us and them and what essence we have as us and what essence they have and and you know the the threat response therefore of, of difference shows up and, and 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 it creates tension creates conflict and you know whether it's imaginary borders or imaginary categories uh, imaginary ideas um uh, we, we 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 then get into yeah a, a tug of war with others, you know, other categories um, in particular?
1: Um, I think that that kind of leads us to the extension of um, psychological essentialism and by extension, genetic essentialism. So as I've mentioned, the, the, the perception of essence is guided towards natural entities. So organisms, minerals, etc. Uh human artifacts do not fall into that category. So if I take uh, a chair and I remove its back and I um, extend its leg and I put it on the floor and put a vase on it um, and I'm showing a kid or an adult that much and says, well, you know, this chair I did all that to that chair. Is that a chair now? And they're going to see the images or they're going to see the process and they say, no, it's a table now. Uh, so they have no problem now they're, changing they're happy to the say, category yes, it's a goat. <laughs> because the category is functional, exactly. But we cannot do it with a sheep and a goat. Now, where your very wise words come into effect, is when we're looking at uh, social categories. So social categories are human artifacts. So why do we care about differences in skin color, but not in eye color? It's because of some sort of um, consensus, uh, some sort of a social decision made somewhere uh, one can argue that one is uh, more prominent or or, or more uh, clear, etc. But other can argue that you know with actual skin tone, uh, skin color, or the way that we use it is a very ineffective way because skin tone is continuous, whereas our categorization for race are not. Um, so social categories are much better described as human artifacts. We gave the meaning, we gave of uh, the borders and the divides between them. However, social categories are one human artifacts that fall very much into that essentialism or psychological essentialism camp. So we seem to essentialize those human categories, those racial categories, gender categories, sexual orientation categories, in the same way that we essentialize organisms. So um, there is an essence to being a woman versus being a man. Men are from Venus, women from Mars, or vice versa. Um, There is an essence to being um, Aboriginal in Australia versus... a a white uh, conqueror or colonialist in Australia. There is an essence of being African versus East Asian. There's an essence of being African-American versus European-American. All those categories seem to have some kind of a perception of an underlying metaphysical essence. And that metaphysical essence also creates some kind of inferences and predictions. So, Um, Research in America shows that uh, there's perception of dangerousness of black Americans much more than of white Americans. And that seems to be something that is there even for people who are either explicitly um, or truly do not feel that they are racist but they still get that apprehensiveness. Uh, There's an underlying kind of perception that then guides uh, the very successful uh, promotion of the born this way narrative uh, in the LGBT community. So we can see that uh, the greater use of that, we are born that way, we are genetically same-sex attracted, as a narrative uh, was probably one of the most potent and effective campaigns in in shifting public perception about acceptability of same-sex relationship. Uh, So we also see it experimentally uh, when you lead people to be exposed to that gene for homosexuality, for example. Uh, most research would suggest that you can then see uh, more positive attitudes towards LGBT individuals, uh, more support for policies that are designed to make the world more equal as far as LGBT are concerned, etc., etc. And when I say most, it's very important that it's most because that leads us to another element of genetic essentialism, which is called the double-edged sword of genetic essentialism. So on the one hand, here's an example where that genetic essentialist perspective can be something that would lead to to decreased prejudice and uh, uh, stigma out there. For most of us, that would be a very positive outcome. Um, However, That is because some of the the biases that come from genetic essentialism are ones that can reduce what we would call blameworthiness. So the deterministic element, so genetic essentialism suggests that um, an outcome is more likely to be deterministic if it comes from genes compared to come from another explanation, just like the example with the Obesity, social network explanation, that is was explicitly, you know, associated to the same degree in our primes the, as the genetic one. But the genetic led to the increased eating, whereas the just as potent alternative environmental explanation did not. Mm. Uh, so it's not a potency. It's not the strength of the association. It's the fact that it's genes versus something else. So uh, determinism is increased by just calling something genetic versus by a different name. It's also related to what we called uh, the naturalness bias. So genes are perceived to be natural. So if something is genetic, something is also natural because it's not a product of human manipulation. And we all know that anything natural sounds to us much better. So although cyanide is natural, it kills you, but that's great. We still see in the supermarkets shelf after shelf of uh, uh, products that claim all natural ingredients. Well, cyanide is a natural ingredient. You don't want it in your food. But they are still using that because we associate positivity with nature, nature and with natural elements. And that's what's called naturalistic fallacy. If something is natural, something is morally acceptable, something is good, etc. So you have two biases that come from genetic essentialism that would arguably reduce things like stigma in that case. However, there is another bias, which we called uh, the bias that is homogeneity or discreteness. So when we are thinking about genes as creating categories, because those categories are now imbued with all the things that we believe genes to be, which is stable, which is um, non-overlapping, So they create categories that are, that have much more rigid boundaries. If it's genetic, you cannot be both. If it's genetic, the whole idea of continuum goes up the window because you have to be in one category or the other. You have the gene and therefore your X you don't have the gene and therefore you Why, Y and X do not overlap. So that creates uh, some sort of a view that in-group members, members of the same race, members of the same gender, doesn't matter, are more similar to each other when you are thinking about the categories as influenced by genes. And the unfortunate part, our group members are further away from your in-group. So if you think from genes perspective, from genetic perspective, and you have that genetic essentialist biases, you are seeing people that are not in your shared genes group as much more different than when you saw them as, yeah, out-group members, but you didn't think in a genetic way. And that means that the all the uh, social sciences research that suggests that the more uh, uh, the otherness element increases prejudice, well, genetic perspectives create stronger otherness, creates stronger boundaries, create greater distance between different categories. Um, and that's why some of the research about social uh, sexual orientation, for example, finds the opposite, that emphasizing the gene for homosexuality leads some people, and we talked about variability before, leads some people to actually double down, to actually experience greater dislike of LGBT, greater uh, uh, um, opposition to support for equal measures such as marriage or adoption of children. Uh, So that's, all these biases seem to be cascading out of what's called genetic essentialism, but while some are potentially reducing uh, uh, prejudice, others increase it.
0: There's also a forcing function that research leans into looking at genetics because it appears to be so deterministic and obviously media like that because naturally provides them with greater viewership and and engagement uh, it, it almost uh, organically starts to move more in one direction because of these forcing Functions and and continues to then reinforce that you know, genetics equals causation, deterministic, and 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 therefore gets used all the way to you know the DNA of the team, uh, or you know in a different way where we we start doing the us and them, uh, and, and we we lose these types of conversations where there's much more nuance. There's there's much more sophistication in. Uh, giving an opportunity to explore these ideas and, and and look at how those relationships occur, and 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 also not to be critical, you know, not to do the same thing, which is you know to point fingers and go us and them, but look at what are the functions that are uh, making the world lean into a certain direction or or not because all of these things i i, I think um uh, when considered in a mindful way you, you you can at least uh begin to think about why are they leaning in that direction not from a causative way and and saying that all assumptions will be right but uh in in trying to do an explanatory way without without Judgment, you know, without another, another additional category of right, wrong, us, them. Uh, so, I like, you know, even your reference previously about the media, you know, not to go out and um, you know crucify them. Uh, it's something I certainly have done in 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 the past and have leaned into. And and certainly from this conversation, I will be thinking about that differently because it's not a part of the solution or, or a part of how I want to be viewing the world.
1: And again, like looking at the literature and looking actually at, uh, at least leading newspapers and the way that they address genetic uh, and genetics research in their publication, I do find that, um, it seems that they have moved from the oversimplification, the obesity genes, the divorce genes, um, to a more nuanced associative kind of claims. Unfortunately, what my research suggests is it really, there's less sensitivity to the way that you are presenting genetics. It's more about if you say genetics, that's it. So even if the media is trying to portray a more accurate picture, um, our own biases as consumers, as readers of that media Mm. are ones that basically once that keyword is there, we we lose that sensitivity to nuance. Oh, it said only associated. No, it doesn't really matter. You know, genes are there. We cannot do, let's throw our hands in the air.
0: Very much in line with uh, uh, relational frame theory, that once uh, a category is in place, you get those not necessarily two teams, but it's easier to explain in two teams. There might be, well, there's, there's many, many teams, but we know what's on each side, you know, good and bad, you know, nature that's on the good side. Uh, if we go out and, and say, um, you know, a football team. That one has a bit of nuance to it, but someone might say, football, that's on the bad side, or you know, we have clear categories about where things should be. You know, global warming, we all know what that is. That one definitely has to be bad. Uh, even though we don't have, you know, I have zero comprehension about that incredibly complex and 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 uh, uh, poorly understood by the masses conversation. You know, I think it's probably a hard one for or scientists, let alone for lay people like, like myself, but we know where it belongs. I know that global warming is bad and I know that solar panels are good and that's all I kind of need to know. And, and, and to hell with the rest, you know, but, uh, uh, th- th- those relational frames, once they get a hold, they're hard to break and, and genetics, you know, uh, equals deterministic, uh, at least at the moment, um, uh without giving it some more thought.
1: It is. And then again, this is something that uh we are still searching for a way that we can communicate nuance in a way that doesn't trigger deterministic perspectives, fatalistic perspective perspective. Um it's it's an uphill battle. It's we still haven't we've offered throughout um, I've offered throughout my you know publication history some suggestions. um there's some limited support for um a few suggestions, but it's not consistent and it's not very powerful. So it's it's still something that would be a great contribution if one would find a really effective way to uh, diminish genetic essentialism, to diminish psychological essentialism in general. Genetics is just, you know, the latest to to captivate it. Uh, you know, uh, Heraclitus and, and other Greek philosophers were probably looking at other ones. Um, Humours, you know, in, in, in ancient Greece, the four humors and the balance between them as the essence of health and essence of characteristics. The type of people who have more black bile are individuals who are X, Y, Z compared to individuals who have red bile. And and so the terminology has changed. The things that we are considered to be uh, the carrier of that metaphysical essence may have shifted, but you know, as a species, we are completely, remarkably you know, attached to that view of the world. And again, it's probably there because it is providing us most of the time with a useful function. It provides us with a way to create categories that most of the time are Useful from a survival perspective, um, mm-hmm. the cost in modern world is just rising because a lot of the threats that we may have encountered two thousand years ago are no really much of a threat anymore in our urban environment that is deprived of wolves and bears and you know other potential predators.
0: Mm-hmm. It it seems like uh, there isn't that silver bullet because it's so multidimensional, multifactorial as to as to how uh, we can functionally continue to live in this in in this world uh, uh, while also hold that nuance. You know, I think maybe that's why education might be you know somewhat of a moderator as as a hypothesis, but that means you know lots of exposure. Um, yeah, there might be some individual traits that, as you say, is, is still not still not uh, well uh, understood well enough, but you know whether it might be some openness trait of, of, of personality or whether it be agreeableness. But education, the idea about that is exposure. You know can we sit in a room, do lots of reading, have robust conversations, tutorials that then you know, uh, look at what what the information says right on both sides of of, of the arguments and etc one of the things that um, strikes me about you is is how selective you are with language how incredibly well spoken you are how uh, well read and 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 how learned uh, you are in 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 what you say you know very stable um and 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 it's so impressive to be able to talk talk to you today and and and, and just want to thank you for for your time i could i could listen to you uh, and, and and ask you so many more questions and hopefully build my my own wisdom over over time um i could do this for 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 days how can or where can i and where can the listeners find out more about uh, these topics um you know your work uh any publications um or any that are interested to work alongside you how, how can we get in touch
1: um well my work is uh mostly appearing in journal articles and sometimes in some books in chapters form uh so first of all let me try to kind of convey my appreciation of the completely unjust uh, uh, evaluations of me as a a person and my intellectual prowess. Uh, I will take it. I will not (laughs) reject it, Uh, but I at best can aspire to be the person who you've described. Um, Nevertheless, it was truly a pleasure to be here and to have that conversation with you. And I think just you know, as you said, I can continue to uh, too much probably to discuss those things. I find them fascinating. I find you as a great person to have that conversation with. So thank you. Um, My research is uh, available online. So if a person just Googles my own name, um, they can find that they have a profile on a website called ResearchGate, where a lot of academics are making their research available to the public. So some of my articles appear in journals that are behind what's called paywall. So people who do not have subscription would have to actually pay to have access to that information.
0: And that's uh, ResearchGate.net. Uh,
1: uh, researchgate.org or um, org, is it it is no dot net you're right
0: net yes. it says he joined um, for free i'm just looking it up now it says join for free so
1: yes so um again it's not a website that has any kind of hostile intentions it doesn't uh, chase you with a uh, suggestion to buy uh, a you know, toilet paper or a new sofa. So um, it's a good place for people to come if they're interested in uh, actual um, research. I find that the type of research I do as a first and foremost social psychologist is quite accessible for people. We, I'm trying to minimize the use of jargon uh, you don't need to have a specific uh, um, <clears throat> training, I believe, to understand what I'm doing. Maybe the statistics part would be something that would be more clear to people who know the statistics, but the statistics part is something that uh, you can just believe that what I found statistically is what I found because there are peer, peer reviewers that that made that kind of quality assurance. So, The narrative itself, I think, is accessible to uh, most individuals who speak English. Um, And yes, I've made my research available there. And also, if anyone wants to use that um, website to get in touch with me, there's an option of doing it. There's also an option of just doing it by emailing me. if, again, you Google me, you can find a lot of uh, ways to get in touch with me quite easily. So I'm not going to challenge people to get a paper and pen and write down a long email. <laughs> so it's just much easier. And just to check do out nowadays. the
0: University of Sydney for all exactly. for, uh, for those listeners.
1: So, uh, again, Ash, it was truly a joy to have this conversation with you. Uh, you are extremely uh hospitable and uh extremely intelligent asking great questions so you made my last hour and a half truly enjoyable
0: uh thank thank, thank you and thank you for your generosity uh and, and 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 intelligence and and for sharing as well for knowledge exchange for all for for myself first and foremost, and also for for our listeners, um, I'd love to have you back at some some point to either continue this conversation or, or to look at other other areas. I know that uh, you've got many other uh, passions and 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 areas to be able to speak on. So um, yeah, thank you, appreciate appreciate you and appreciate your time. Thank you, Nash. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible, and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience, and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.